0: Wait a second. This isn't your grandma's cancer show.
1: Not your grandma's cancer
0: show. Hi, I'm Tatum Duroc, and today we're talking about mental health. And it's something that can affect us before, during, and sometimes way after our cancer treatment. Sometimes it just doesn't get talked about enough. So I have Claire from Shine Cancer Support with me today, and we're going to be responding to some stories that were shared at Shine Connect, which is our young adult um, cancer conference. It's the only one in the UK. And I want to mention just right off the bat that we are going to be talking about suicidal thoughts so if that's something that's not right for you today please take care of yourself and you know feel free to skip to another episode And if you are staying with us, you'll be hearing from Reem, who was diagnosed with mental health conditions before she was diagnosed with cancer. She has um, bipolar and EUPD. And we're going to hear a bit about how that all played into her experience of treatment. And we're going to hear from Kieran, who was actually in the middle of treatment when he knew he needed help. And Ben, who was a long time after treatment where he realized that his coping mechanisms were actually quite detrimental. So not talking and drinking. So many of us, I'm sure, can relate to some of those. So I have Claire with me today. Welcome, Claire. Hiya, lovely to be here. I should say welcome back because you've been on, on this show several times now. Well, get rid of me. No, no, nor do we want to. So I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself and a bit about what you do at Shine. I'm Claire. It's lovely to be here. I currently now work for Shine as what
2: we call the program delivery manager. What that basically means is I'm in, in charge of working out all the logistics behind making our online programs work. Um, we'll talk, I'm sure, a little bit about those um, in a moment. But what that means on a very practical level is talking to lots and lots of people who are living with and beyond cancer about their experiences and getting together in groups to share those. Um, so it really does give me kind of uh, an up close view of the reality of living with cancer and the struggles that people go with. And obviously, alongside that is, is the mental health challenges that come with it um i became part of shine because i have my own experience i was diagnosed with a ewing's osteosarcoma when i was 17. so i've also been through cancer treatment and have a very personal um version of what it's like to struggle with mental health going through that as well so that's that's my my
0: experience when it comes to this stuff do you find that some people are a bit surprised when they run into kind of a a mental health wall or a challenge that they really weren't expecting to, yeah, I th- I
2: think often they are. I think for a lot of people, you know, when, when I talk to people, they'll be like, "But you know, I was coping fine before. Mm. <laughs> I've been through challenges before and I've been fine, and and I have my coping strategies." And and sometimes I think it does take people by surprise the kind of I like to call it that rug pull moment, you know, the moment that that like, is completely changes everything and takes your feet out from under you or it can do. And, and I think that can be quite shocking. I think the way in which it presents can also surprise people. They'll think, well, it would be normal if I was worried about my symptoms or my treatment, but actually it's coming out as social anxiety and I don't want to see anyone. And, mm. and that's kind of like, it, it can be quite surprising in the way it presents, I think. Um, and I think this is all because really we just don't talk about it enough. Like when you get diagnosed, there's not someone sitting down going, now listen, lots of people struggle around this time and you might find you're feeling this and that. And and, and maybe that's a part of it, the kind of lack of open chat
0: around this stuff. Yeah. And I think sometimes whatever coping mechanism you've used in the past sometimes doesn't work when you get to cancer. Yeah. So it, it can feel like this whole new like even though you've had as you said loads of challenges in the past or you know I'm tough enough or you're even thinking of it as just a physical thing and you know I'm still carrying on with my life like it can still catch up with you um, and in a way that is I love the description you gave that rug pull moment yeah yeah and I mean from a very personal perspective when I was
2: diagnosed, I was an absolute, you know, I was, I was a real perfectionist. I was at school. I would work very hard, did everything on time, did everything right. But, you know, I was a perfectionist and that was how I did things. And obviously there isn't a way to do cancer treatment in a perfect neat and tidy box. And so I was like, oh, I have, I have nothing, I have nothing. I have no ways of coping with this that feel comfortable to me anymore.
0: Mm. Like I'm
2: not one to talk about how I feel very openly. That didn't, you know, that felt alien. So I think it is the way you live your life might work perfectly well until you come up against a particularly new challenge. And
0: yeah, it can be really tough. I think it's really fascinating how they are coming up with more and more kind of... um, Descriptions of the fight and flight response. So it used to be just fight and flight because um, they were mainly looking, studying men, but they have now branched it out. So we've got fight, flight, freeze, um, fawn. Um, sometimes known as submit, but yes. So you have those people that might get quite angry, you know, and kind of want to fight and you know start arguments and you know really get in the in the weeds in that way. And then you have other people that just want to flee the scene, uh, you know, close it up. I'm I'm out. Like I'm not dealing with it. And then you have those that. You know, and I think the, the submit is so challenging because you almost become so disconnected from yourself that you're not checking in with how you are, and you're just like accepting, but not in a empowered way. Um, yeah. But things are being done to you, mm-hmm. and the fawning is also fascinating, sometimes known as flattering, where um, you're, you're just want to say nice things just to get out of the room to get out of the situation Mm -hmm. and you know how all of those play into your mental health is just is fascinating because when we have a challenge what do we do do we fight do we run do we you know disconnect do we start finding people to flatter and make nice with them um so I think um We should have a listen to Reem's story Um, and Reem um, was diagnosed with breast cancer and we're going to come in where she is explaining a little bit about her prior diagnosis.
3: So EUPD basically stands for uh, Emotional uh, Unstable uh, Personality Disorder. Um, And it's kind of misleading with saying personality disorder because people just assume it means you have multiple personalities and that's a different diagnosis completely. It's called something completely different. This is actually because I am unable to emotionally regulate myself as well as the average Joe uh, and I require medication to do so and that helps also with the bipolar because bipolar in addition to EUPD kind of exacerbates my manic and uh, episodes as well as my down episodes Um, so I have to take medication for that so this is even before I was diagnosed with breast cancer and and I was learning to manage that and that's really difficult and what I learned through coming to Shine is I met other people that also had bipolar and also went through breast cancer and how their journeys were also complicated uh, as well as mine and it it was difficult for the health professionals as well because they were dealing with someone that couldn't take the medication because I couldn't take my mental health medication during my treatments um, because they were going to interfere and it wasn't going to have any impact so that was that you know there was a likelihood they knew there would be a likelihood of me having a psychotic episode or a, a depressive episode and i had both um but yeah eupd is very much about not being able to regulate your emotions um but so yeah.
0: they actually, so th- the things that were keeping you emotionally regulated, the yeah. things that were keeping your bipolar stable so that you could do your job and, and everything, those things that you needed, you yeah. then didn't have access to in treatment.
3: No, not at all.
0: So it's one of the most stressful times. Yeah. Your support, basically. Yeah. Yeah, goes away exactly. How did you feel when you knew that you weren't going to be able to have your medication? Uh, I, I, you
3: know, there's been so many periods where I thought I could do things anyway without medication because that's the other thing about bipolar is when you're manic, you think everything is wonderful, and you think that uh, you don't need medication anymore because you're thinking irrationally so that's what happened uh, during my breast cancer I started going into a manic episode i i did i was involved in various movements and i did lots of campaigning pretending that it as if it, i wasn't going through all of that i was going through these delusions so that's what that's how it triggered um but yeah it's 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 it was inevitable in some ways um but when you're in it you don't realize it's happening um and, and did
0: the oncology team have anything in place for you uh, uh they,
3: they they really didn't they didn't know how to deal with it and they kept on saying to me like after everything and I calmed down and and after I got sectioned and and I was discharged after all my treatments etc. Um, then they realized I needed, you know, therapy and, and I mean, during the treatments, actually, that's completely, I was, I'm completely wrong. I did have some therapy, but it was only six sessions. And for yeah. someone that has yeah. this kind of level, it didn't work. So I can't, even, this is the reason why I can't even remember those sessions because that didn't even touch anything, whatever. Um, But they did offer that and that was free Macmillan. Uh, But in the end, I had to pay privately several years after my breast cancer journey. And that's why I say to people, if they can get a psychotherapist or a therapist from the beginning to help them process everything, I, I always will recommend that because that's a mistake that I made. I did it very late. Um, and I did process things and, and I was manic and therefore got involved in lots of campaigns and in some ways some things come out are positives you know and it's not all negatives when you're going through these manic episodes you can actually achieve also things that's what you know that's what the strange thing about it and that's why people don't know whether you are going through it or whether you know you are just being generally happy and
0: but that must be difficult a challenging place to assess what it is that you need and yes. also to advocate for yourself definitely relate to a medical team what it is that you need definitely. and so how did that kind of you know tell me a little bit about your um your how the diagnosis the process of being diagnosed yeah uh, was for you
3: Yeah, so (laughs) I, it was like nearly five and a half years ago now, but uh, I remember it so clearly. I remember coming out of the shower and I have a mirror. I don't tend to look at myself very often, which is quite bad of me. And I certainly didn't check my breasts regularly. That's really terrible of me, especially as I come from a background of public health, where I was part of promoting screening for breast cancer and all these various messages, but wasn't taking on the advice so I take some part in, in my errors but um, the nipple basically inverted in and, and I knew at that point that was definitely going to be cancer and when I felt it it was a big lump behind it so I ignored this for quite a long time uh, and then when I saw my GP he referred me and within two weeks I immediately got biopsies and scans and and blood tests, etc. cetera. And, and was, and, and it was confirmed to me that it was a grade two, stage three uh, breast cancer, because it was eight centimeters long. Um, so yeah, so at the and the thing is, you know, I was saying this to you earlier, Tatum. You know, in films, you know, uh, when they portray people going through cancer, they you have this image of your family and friends coming together and supporting you exactly how you need, you want, and need, etc. And I had the complete opposite. You know, it actually divided my family because at the time, not only I was going through breast cancer, but my mother was going through breast cancer. Um, and I never was particularly close with my family. I, I was always the black sheep, so I didn't feel I wanted them to really to be part of my breast cancer journey. So I tried to do it on my own with the help of friends. But obviously those are all added stresses um, and all manifested, unfortunately, in a psychotic episode in the midst of my treatments. Um, so yeah, it's really difficult. I think I think health professionals are trying to figure out how to support people, uh, that have a mental health diagnosis at the same time as going through uh, intrusive treatments like chemo, which will affect their medication. So that is a still a question mark. I don't think they knew what to do. And I think it's something that uh, I certainly want to push for, you know, to try um, and make understand the, the health professionals about how it impacts people with a already diagnosis of mental illness um but yeah there weren't there wasn't much for me really I had to do all the hard work myself to figure out how to pick myself up and rebuild a new me through psychotherapy
0: yeah and so where were you in your treatment when you had the psychotic episode
3: yeah so it was I was just about to start radiotherapy so I completed mastectomy a failed reconstruction uh and then lymph node clearing and then after that I went into a psychotic episode and I had to keep going like I had a nurse that followed me to the hospital to have uh my radiotherapy because it was a daily thing for a period of time and so yeah it was the most awful experience of my life that was the first time I've ever been sectioned and ended up in a mental health ward um and it was traumatic already breast cancer is traumatic in itself but adding that on top was just yeah it was just on another level that I've never experienced in my life um and then I went into actually a manic episode when I was discharged from there so I guess when they gave me the antidepressant that kind of made me go up and up and up And then I came out like again, you know, uh, in a manic episode and then crashed again into a a period of depression. So it was really hard. The aftermath of uh, even after finishing radiotherapy, like picking myself up in so many bits of pieces was certainly not easy. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. But like I always say... Going
0: but like, through the at that point as well exactly but I always say to people
3: I think going through all of this although I wish it on no one I think it gives you that kind of depth and understanding about life and about the way you view life about your perspective it changes everything in your life and that's not a bad thing because <laughs> initially I was scared of that you know I wanted just the old me I wanted just to get back into normal and in fact the doctors when they first diagnosed me said you've got the easy cancer your life will get back to normal within two seconds don't worry you know um and I thought maybe that's true but that wasn't the case for me and, and that's not the case for a lot of people that I've spoken to through Shine because and that's what I love about Shine is the fact that I was able to connect with people exactly that I've gone through what I've gone through and understood fully what I've gone through because they also were bipolar are bipolar sorry and going through breast cancer treatment so shine has helped lots in in that way and and the breakout program also taught me what's within my control and what isn't um so yeah it's working progress i'm not saying that i've rebuilt myself and you know i'm gonna save the world now suddenly but no, but i'm much more realistic now about what i can achieve for myself and within my limits and boundaries
0: so yeah to hear that. You know, she. You know, the doctor saying you have the easy cancer, you'll be back to normal, just straight away. Just really shows the 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 absolute kind of it, it, so many people thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to get back to my life. But actually, we come as complex humans, and and so many people have this complicated journey. I'd love to hear Claire what what. You heard in in Reem's experiences. Yeah,
2: I mean exactly that, isn't it? It's it's that we come sort of preloaded with all these experiences and a history and a culture, maybe that informs how we react to challenges in life, and and to kind of to wrap it all up and say, well, you've done the treatment now, so you can just get on with it and get back to it. It's just it's such an unrealistic thing. um I think the thing that stands out for me from Reem's story is the way the approach of healthcare professionals um, that physical and mental healthcare is so disjointed. Yeah, that the the lack of kind of coordination of those two specialties. Um, it to me it I, I just can't understand it because you know we all know that living with well going through any health I mean people who just have flu for two weeks come out feeling battered emotionally vulnerable (laughs) you find yourself more tearful everything feels much more overwhelming like and that's on a really small minor level and so anyone who's going through a serious life-threatening health event whatever it might be or people living long term with a with a chronic condition or an incurable like it's inevitable that people will have some kind of feelings about it (laughs) like whether that tips over into sort of being a mental health diagnosis i think it's kind of irrelevant it's the fact that we just don't connect the two yeah um but even more so in reem's situation where she had an established set of treatment and a and a, a setup that kind of broadly worked yeah. and you know that that actually the transition between the two services just doesn't take that into account and doesn't the one doesn't support the other and they seem really you know, I I love, I love my healthcare professionals. And yeah, you know, I'm a big champion for the healthcare in this country. But this particular area,
0: I'm like, it feels really lacking. Yeah, yeah, there's so much more that really should be done. And it also shows that it, you know, the fact that she mentioned she hadn't had a psychotic break like that before, she had never been sectioned before, just shows how much like whatever you were maybe dealing with, in the past how much elevation there is when you're also going through a failed mastectomy reconstruction you know or you know thinking about doing all of this but not having your family around and this kind of unique you know but everybody's unique so it's it you know like What Reem was saying about having, like, you know, this film kind of version of everyone's rallying around. Not everyone has that situation, and that's actually common. Um, And so, yeah, just the the you have the easy cancer, you'll be back to normal. Just Mm. is so almost gaslighting. Mm. It is. It is, and it's not just. I mean,
2: we're sort of saying, you know the challenge, the sort of existential challenge of being given a life-threatening diagnosis in itself, the the kind of the psychological impact, but also the physical stuff, like all the chemicals they put in you. I mean, I remember having one particular drip that went through with my chemo where I would get instantaneous panic attacks. And I was like, it was, no, you know, there was no kind of warning or talk about what was going on or, and I thought I was losing my mind, you know, and, and it was fortunately for me, relatively short-lived, you know, it'd be a few hours, which was unpleasant enough. But, it, you know, there are so many different factors at play. Yeah. All the kind of social, psychological, physical, everything can feed into that escalated sense of like emotional vulnerability, I think.
0: And can I ask you, like, what did your um, panic attacks look like? Um, They were just, I mean, it was a really odd
2: it was such an odd thing because obviously at first I didn't associate it with with the drip that had just been put up. Mm-hmm. I just suddenly felt like it was like the feeling that my life was in danger. You know, like someone might as well have been holding a gun to my head. That kind of fear with no reason, and it was just such an odd. I think the the tricky thing is also when you have a cancer diagnosis, people go, "Don't worry, we know it's a really stressful time." You're obviously, and you kind of want to say, "No, this isn't normal." <laughs> normal anxiety and worry about what's going on. This is a whole other level and trying to communicate that. And that's something else actually I picked up from me talking is the, the, the burden on her to advocate yes. at a time when she was already under so much pressure because people didn't understand or wouldn't, you know, the services weren't there. I think the ability to describe what's happening to you in an assertive way and get the support you need when you feel like you might be losing a grip on your sanity it's a, you, you're not really in a position to do it so the kind of meeting that lack of understanding about what's happening to you what you feel is happening to you
3: mm-hmm.
2: so
0: difficult so difficult and the fact that they knew that because they would know what bipolar is and what manic can look Normal, you know, can look like someone's thriving, um, that that isn't necessarily a space where someone can tap into actually what I need. Whereas someone else might be in a feeling of feeling worthless. And be on the other end of it. And again, how are th- if you're feeling worthless, how are you asking for help? How are you advocating for yourself? So yes, the burden being on the person to do it. Um, oh, I think we could rearrange the healthcare system, Claire. I think we really could. We can make it so much better. Um a tea and a few biscuits. We'll sort the world out. <laughs> we will. Um we're gonna hear from Kieran who um had testicular cancer and um he actually was in the middle of treatment when um, he knew that he needed some help.
1: So I remember when, before I went to start a chemo, that my doctor oncologist said, so you're 35, all your blood test results are phenomenal, like magnesium, iron, zinc, everything is like average or above average. You have no deficiencies. Your testosterone level is 30% above the UK male average. You are literally, she said, a prime candidate for chemotherapy and 75% of people sell for it and 15-20% have mild to moderate side effects and then she said what 2-5% to 5% have, a, have a bad run but we don't think that's going to be you. So <clears throat> I held that close obviously and I prided myself on my physical you know capabilities and prowess so it was hard for me to talk to a nurse during halfway through chemo when I started to have thoughts about Basically, I'd started to have flashing images of of slitting my wrists in the doctor's surgery, like a a cry for pain. I don't know what it was. It just started to happen. And then I started to think about throwing myself in front of a train um, at a specific train station. And that's basically what was going through my mind. And it started to happen like 30, 40 times a day. And then it got to the point where I went into chemo one one morning and I I I, I know now what happened because at the time I didn't realize but I stopped speaking and uh, a nurse tried to engage with me a few times and said um Kieran you're not you're not speaking now this is a concern so we need you to actually speak so we can we can hook you up to the chemo and move on with the day and I finally said I can't speak and she said why not and I said because I'm having crazy thoughts and she said, um, I always remember, she said, what's the craziest thing you thought in the last 24 hours? I just said, I'm going to kill myself. And that's it. And uh, she says, well, what, what, how are you going to do it? And I just, I told her exactly that. So she said, okay, just stay there. So then she brought in a doctor. Um, oh, I haven't talked about this in a while. Uh, then she brought in a doctor. And he's, I always remember, because he lightened it without meaning to. <laughs> he held my hand and he says, okay, Kieran, I'm not a doctor of feelings, but I'd like to. <laughs> um, and, it, and I didn't laugh because I was so, <laughs> I was so depressed. But internally, I just, I, I, it was like a quip, like a comic mm. comedic quip, and I did giggle internally. I looked him dead in the eye, I was like, what the, f- what are you talking about, mate? I found it quite, quite funny.
0: Yeah.
1: He's <laughs> a lovely guy, and I, I just says, um, yeah, I don't. I Don't want to do this no more. I don't want to do the treatment. I just I just want to die. It's it's just too much. I can't, it's it's 24/7 now. It's not, it's just not relenting, and it's just it's constant you hear what's constant I what this throbbing in my face, it's like my eyes and my ears, just it's like it's just constant pain. And the, and the, if some of probably a few because there's 30 people on someone knows what tinnitus is or tinnitus, I never know which one it is. But if you have a bad day, just multiply that on chemo by a thousand. And it's just like someone's put an, a, a screwdriver in your ear and it's just poking you continuously. It was horrible. So anyway, yeah, um, that's the kind of the grim side. And then he said, OK, so can you do chemo? And I I just I just was, was blank again. And and, I, and something came from within. And I said, yeah, just just hook. Actually, that's it. I said, yeah, just hook me up. I said, just hook me up and let me be. Mm. And he he went, okay. I said, just just minimal talking to me. And then they said he came back half an hour later after I was hooked up and he said, we're gonna send you down for emergency psychiatric evaluation at um, Thomas's. For some reason they couldn't do it internally, the specialist was in Thomas's. So I got they get they got me a taxi, fair play to them, or ambulance after chemo. They called my mum and she had to she was my next of kin. I'm not married, I don't have kids. And she had to have that call. And uh I went down to chemo and I had I had this lovely woman like spoke to me for an hour. And, and you know what? It's I, I'm never gonna say I was or I wasn't gonna do it because I had I had some really aggressive thoughts. And one time I did stand near near a train station, but I'm never gonna say I was or I wasn't. Hopefully I wasn't. But what happened that day with her was what just what the doctor's orders, pardon the pun. Someone heard me out. I didn't have to put on the front of, not an, I don't want to say aggressive, but like, listen, I, I, I'm, I'm a sporty, athletic, proud, aggressive man in a sporting context and stuff like that. I'm, I'm powerful. My physique was always important to me. I was always viewed, not as an alpha, but I was always viewed as like a Jack the Lad, physical prowess, just like a woman's, you know, beauty is, is held up in her 20s a man's physicality can be held up in his twenties. And it was really, really hard for me to say I'm struggling. That's what I'm trying to say because of where I came from, an Irish cultural background. We've changed a lot of society the last 50 years for me to cry out and just cry. I cried with her for like half an hour. I hadn't cried in like that. It, it just, it wasn't the done thing. And at the end of it, she says, because when I walked in she says, how, 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 on a scale of one to 10, how like you to harm yourself? And I went eight, seven, eight. And she, after it, she went after the talk and the cry. It's a really, really good cry. And I've cried sixty times since then. So that was a starting point. She went, what? How? How like you now? And I was like, listen, like a two. I just, I don't feel good. And she said, you needed to talk, didn't you? And yeah, I needed, I needed to get some things off my chest.
0: Claire, what stands out to you hearing Kieran talk about that? Wow, it's such. I mean.
2: He, he describes it in such a way you feel you're there with him don't mm-hmm. you it's amazing but um for me I think it's that the sort of physical relentlessness and what that can do to you um what it can do to you emotionally and psychologically it's not just something you can sort of sleep off those symptoms and and like he said thankfully you know it's not the vast percentage of people that get this kind of awful reaction to treatment that is kind of physically so challenging but you just think i mean when he describes it sounds like torture doesn't it it's what you do to torture someone and then why are we surprised that people feel like i cannot cope with this i cannot do one more day one more you know one more hour this is feeling
0: i don't want to do this i do not want to be feeling like i'm feeling anymore and Um, that's i think hard for people that have never had maybe a you know a, a health condition or you know a life-threatening situation that you see someone struggling for their life and are not necessarily understanding why you know that struggle is so hard that you might not want to live anymore yeah yeah i mean it's it must
2: seem objectively like a strange sort of contrast that you've got all these people trying to save your life basically all these kind of interventions and everything is to going towards that goal it it makes it very difficult to say hold on a minute that's you know i'm not feeling i'm not feeling that way at the minute and and i need to talk about it and like you said that kind of the relief i mean when he said she just heard me out like yeah. that's what he just needed to be able to say that and that's that's something that just feels you know from talking to lots and lots of people going through um going through the shine programs but generally in the community it's just that space to be able to say the things that you think might feel unacceptable yeah to other people things that you think people aren't going to understand this they won't they won't get why yeah in amongst trying to save my life i'm also thinking about ending it like that just wouldn't you'd think that wouldn't make sense and so to talk about it openly is
0: even harder isn't it yeah i I really struggled myself with um, two different types um, of thoughts. So there was definitely a long time that I wish that I hadn't existed. That I remember driving past the place where... Um, you know sort of not where my mom and dad met because they met out on a boat in the middle of the, but um, a place where they had been before I was born and almost screaming mentally back in time don't do it I don't want to exist if there was a button that I could have pressed to not exist I would have done that and there was this absolute sense of like Life being, like, what is the point? It isn't life anymore. It's existing. Um, I know what I need to do um, in terms of looking after my sister and staying alive for her, but there was no point to life. Mm. And another time where I was hearing a voice, which wasn't my own, which I've heard that's, that's the voice to pay even more attention to, and I was on this drug and it was, um, it was a hormonal drug. I'd already had my ovaries out, but it was to suppress any last little traces of estrogen in my body. So it was like a, really like an, an estrogen curfew. And when I was taking that, I started to get thoughts that were just jump in the river. Just do it. And I was like, that's not my voice. And wait a minute, what about my sister? And it was like, no, no one's going to pay any attention. You're worthless. You're nothing. Just go. And, you know, from finding out since then that, you know, I think both of those, you need to look for help and someone to talk to about them. Mm -hmm. But when you're almost having plans, it's like a fire alarm to go get help. Um I And mean, I was gonna I was gonna
2: ask when when that was happening. Did what was your instinct about telling someone else about that thought or feeling?
0: I mean I was ashamed. Yeah. I was really ashamed because I could live with the I just have to exist. I could live with, you know, life isn't life anymore. Like that kind of really dark place. But to feel crazy was a whole other level. And I felt crazy. And I felt yeah, um, the voice was really scary, I have to say. Um, and but because I knew it was related to this particular drug that I was supposed to be on for 10 years, I and I knew that that was behind it there was a little bit of control in there that if I don't take the drug then I might not have that voice whereas I imagine someone else having that voice but maybe not knowing which out of the multitude of drugs are going on you were saying that particular drip and yeah. the panic attack like if you don't have the association how would you have any sense of control so I think I was quite lucky um, in that
2: I think there's something in there as well isn't there that the the feeling crazy because when you're going through sort of a huge health thing like I don't know about you but I feel I have to be really on my game and I have to be able to advocate and I have to be believable yes. and trustable and I need the healthcare professionals to take me seriously and that is such a part of feeling secure going through that process it's being feeling like not you're on an equal footing but you know that you're yeah. being taken seriously and and there's a fear there, isn't there? As if you go and start telling them, this is what I'm thinking, this is what I'm hearing, this is what I'm feeling, are you just going to be written off as someone who can't really be – their their point of view isn't going to be, will it be down on my notes forever if I ever go back and start kind of – you know, if I'm trying to advocate or or yeah. perhaps complain, am I just going to be written off as this person? All that is so complex that that kind of – um relationships we have within our experiences of illness are, are so complex and tied together that it, it makes it there are lots of reasons i can understand why you'd be
0: reluctant to go and talk to people yeah and yet that connection and being heard and being told this is this is you know the unusual in our case is is usual. Like, again, we, you know, we were all diagnosed young, that's unusual. And side effects are rare, but they also happen. And I think there's something about, you know, in both of those, you know, Reem's story and Kieran's is, you know, oh, these side effects happen, but we don't think it will happen to you. You know, yeah. this, you know, the, oh, you have the easy cancer. Like, come on. You You'll know, bounce but, back because you're young. Yes. You like you're yeah. young, you know, you're, you're strong, you're fine. But actually, you know, perhaps all that strength, you know, can actually be, um, you know, y- y- you have a further place to fall from. And I've had some tinnitus as well. Not as bad as that. But, oh, my God, hats off to him for dealing it's the most awful awful awful, yeah yeah, like you were saying torturous Mm. thing
2: um and I think like exactly what you said you know I think all those thoughts around I can't talk to someone or I shouldn't you know I'm not saying those are reasons not to (laughs) what I'm saying is that is an understandable feeling when you're in the middle of it and the reality is when you do and my experience and lots of experiences I've heard when you do mention it to someone they're like Of course, you're struggling. It would be really unusual if you weren't like 70% of young adults with cancer will um, say that they've suffered with depression. It's the norm. (laughs) Like it is not weird. You're not going crazy. You're not, you know, none of those things are true. But you might, if you're saying those to yourself as a reason not to ask for help, Mm -hmm. have a little go at challenging those because you're definitely
0: not on your own in that. The doctor's response of, I'm not a doctor of feelings, was like Bluffly. the most honest, I imagine like the most authentic response, um, which yes, like, as you know, he said, he found funny somewhere in him, um, you know, and the, the fact that the, you know, that doctor did refer him on to someone who was, um, you know, someone that could... Um, take on board so there is that thing of the person that you speak to the first time might Mm. not be the exact right person to talk to but there will be someone um yeah will be and it's i think talking
2: about the difference between you know when like that what they were trying to do with kieran is asking him about what was he feeling these things were these just thoughts he had or were they actually plans that he'd made and I think that's a really important distinction to flag as well and that will be why you know they got him to see someone quickly that day because he was actually kind of envisaging a plan and a place and a and I think that's something to to flag up for people if anyone's having that sort of feeling I know we've we work with a wonderful counselor called Kathy as part of Shine and she says to us when when we're doing work together you know actually feeling that way it's not that unusual, you know, it's, it's not, it's not to say it, you don't need help with it, but I think you can have a thought like that, and that can terrify you, and you think, oh my gosh, this is, this is like, I'm obviously a re- in a really bad space, and actually the, the thought and the feeling, you're, you're sort of playing around with mortality, and what's happening, and what are my options, and all of that, it, it kind of, It can lead you to those thoughts without it being an actual plan you've made. And I think distinguishing between having a thought, um, playing around with the concept of living and dying, which is Mm -hmm. something you kind of are faced with when you have cancer diagnosis, versus like, actually, I've thought about a practical way of doing this. Um, The former definitely get help, talk to someone. The latter, I think, get the help, you know, do something immediately
0: if you're feeling that way. Yeah, definitely. So we're going to hear from Ben, who realized after his cancer treatment that um, he was mentally not in a good space. And he'd actually had two different kinds of cancer. So he had myeloma in 2013, and then lymphoma in 2017. So he'd been through a lot. And we're going to jump in with him now.
4: After eighteen weeks, um, the results were coming back that they were able to suppress uh, the lymphoma considerably, and that I was in a state of what they were calling remission. So they felt that they that there had been a success, um, and that they had suppressed it sufficiently to to ana- allow me to to sort of live my life. But the frustration is that. The follicular lymphoma is a chronic illness, so they can't eradicate it completely. So I was um I was sort of cured, but sort of not in a way., uh, but I was able to to then carry on with 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 living um, with this sort of dark cloud hanging over me almost of what the future hold whilst they've been able to treat it and work with me. At this point in time, I was still always conscious. Not a day went past almost where I was thinking about what if, what if, what if this happens, what if that happens, how does this affect my relationship, my work, everything really. But what was helpful at the time was the physical checkups. So again, I went into a program of um, monthly checks uh, where I'd go to the hospital and I would have my... um, my blood's checked and they'd do a physical check on me and I'd have a consultation as part of that with the specialist at Guy's hospital on the bridge, which is quite close to where we live, which is again, which is quite comforting. But I never did anything at that point um, around my mental health, never really crossed my mind. I'd had um, conversations with my clinical nurse and her team and, and the consultants that there was things available to me but I felt that I was okay because I was getting these physical checks and I'd go in for my physical check. The blood seemed fine, Ben. There's no lumps and bumps, you're okay. And off I'd I'd go and carry on with life. And that then um, was really sort of how my life was for a number of years. And I seemed to be able to um, keep uh, the fear and the anxiety at a, at a reasonably low level, but it was, it was always there and always something that I never really sort of um, addressed. Um, as part of that um, and what caused that to become an issue was uh, the pandemic. And I began um, the pandemic, like many people in lockdown, obviously with um, working from home um, and losing that um, busyness in life, that had kept me from thinking too much about my illness. And with lockdown and working from home, I had a bit more time on my hands. And with more time on my hands, I had more time to think and worry about the what ifs. And as part of that, again, because I didn't have at the time, tools or ways to deal with these anxieties and these fears, I started to drink um, alcohol more than I, I should have and the alcohol became my coping mechanism for that worry. And with the stresses of work, the stresses of life, and then the stresses of this health issue that I seem to constantly be worrying about, I, I tended to, to drink alcohol to, um, to escape that, that, uh, that reality. I was, was really sort of, at the time, coping thinking I was coping with it by drinking when really I was checking out and the issues would all still be there when I would come back um, from from drinking. So during uh, during the pandemic, during COVID, I realised that this was becoming a problem. People around me realised it was becoming a problem. I decided to um, get therapy, try and get get some help. Um, And my doctor's uh, consultant and my nurse at the hospital provided me with some contact details. Um, And I also reached out to SHINE and that's when I undertook the um, SHINE Breakup Program, Uh, registered for that and met um, a number of fantastic people who also were were, um, experiencing uh, different stages of, of different cancers. And we worked a program over a number of weeks with um, facilitators from Shine. And it was fantastic. It was really good. it was the first time I had actually done any sort of group therapy work. I uh, really enjoyed it. Um, really uh, bonded with, with the, the people that were on the call and we're still on a, on a WhatsApp group. Now we still talk to each other. Some of them um, were aware of, of today actually, and wished me well, which was really nice. And it was during that that I thought, this is, almost I felt this is enough. This is dealing with my, my worries and my issues, but it actually wasn't. I did need more help. Um, and at the time I didn't think I did, but my drinking didn't really um, slow down or stop. And so I continued to pursue um, medical therapy support. Um, through psychiatrists, through psychologists, through psychotherapists. And it really was a, a um, bit of a trial and error. Uh, I was, um, I went through the NHS in the first instance and the, um, the availability of seeing someone was, was challenging. And uh, luckily I have private cover through work, so I was able to, to tap into that um, and I was able to eventually find um someone who i felt i could open up more to and i got to a point really where um i had been uh my drinking was really out of out of uh, out of control you could say i was it was unmanageable my life was becoming unmanageable as a result of that um, and i was i had to basically be honest with myself be honest with my therapist i was uh, told in everything. Um, I reached out to um, Alcoholics Anonymous at the time as well uh, to, to to seek help from them, the program and fellowship that that is. And through that step that I made, um, that I realised I had to do that to to address this. I was able to stop my drinking, start looking at the reasons why I had been you know, become or why I was drinking so much and understand those issues and start to unpack that and and, and, and realise what, um, what my thoughts and feelings were that were resulting in this behaviour. I also, through my therapist, was able to, um, and through um, my employer, who was very, very supportive, I was able to take some time off work And I was able to um, undergo a day program um, at a hospital where they do um, psychiatric sort of work with with people dealing with all sorts of things in life, not just just health issues. Um, But it was a a very, this was only four months ago, really, it was a very special time for me because I was able to um, learn so much more about myself. And I learned more in that that period of time than I had for a very long time over my life. And it was all all centered around mental health. Um, I was able to uh, learn more about mindfulness, awareness, um, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, I was able to um, deal with my anger management. And I was able to start to realize and identify when I was becoming anxious or when I was stressed with something. Just take a step back and understand the, or try to understand what the reasons were and, and then look at those reasons rather than, I'm really stressed. This is all too much. I'll have a drink to forget about things. Um, so through the, the therapy program, I was able to start dealing with those issues. And through the support of AA as well, I was able to. Um, tackle the, the drinking problem which it was and I can you know I accepted that um, I'm, I'm happy to say that through that um, that pro- through the AA program I haven't had a drink since and it's 110 days today but if that's a that's a journey and that's something I'll continue to work on because I know that that doesn't help me with my mental health so I don't don't, don't touch that and certainly don't plan to um, but the therapy work is great because it was great. And it's something I keep going back to now because they've taught me some tools to be able to, to identify though when those issues are starting to arise and, and, you know, middle-aged man, I didn't really communicate much with my, um, my anxieties, my uh, stresses. I wasn't a good communicator with, with my partner. I wasn't a good communicator with um, friends or family. I always seemed to just bottle things up. And that really was a pressure cooker, um and would result in issues of resentment, issues of anger, issues of stress, fear, anxiety, and, and that would all just, sort of bubble away really. And it would then um, explode with me um, using the wrong tools to to address the the, the, real, the real set the real concern.
0: That last line, the wrong tools to address the real concern, it just really encapsulates, um, you know, such a. It's. His story is so, um, so well told. And yeah, like Kieran and Riam I'm so in it and also able to relate to my own experiences by hearing him. Um, and yeah, like the wrong tools. Um, yeah, is Absolutely. that something.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, Ben's insight is incredible, isn't it? Like, to be able to kind of go through all that and reflect, and I think that's hard one insight. Um, Yeah. But absolutely. I mean, I think there is such a, you know, what we're talking about here is anxiety of the highest level, isn't it? That, like, what's going to happen, the what ifs he talks about. And I'm sure everyone listening who's gone through cancer or any difficult diagnosis would know exactly what that means and what that feels like and looks like. the the desire to just get rid of that feeling is so strong isn't it and it's just if there was something that could just take this away and unfortunately the the things that do that quickly aren't always the best things for us or you know if we if we do that again and again and we can't stop doing that then it they're the difficult things and I think you know we don't have to be talking about full-blown addiction or alcoholism here these can be like Just behaviours that aren't that great either, you know, like just sticking your head in the sand or zoning out or, you know, just not communicating with anyone so you don't have to talk about it. Um, Saying I'm fine whenever anyone asks, you know, all those are ways of just shutting down that reality
0: of the emotion of of what you're going through. Yeah. I and mean, he it puts behave, really yeah, he puts it so beautifully as like bottling it up and becoming a pressure cooker. like yeah. you can really see that you know, yeah, keeping everything in just mm-hmm. as much maybe as the expression of those fears in the drinking, and it can come out in so many different ways. I think people imagine that when you know you have cancer that you're gonna you know eat all the right things and and look after yourself but actually it can manifest like that it can be eating the bad things and you know
2: it can be be about your self-care can't it like the way absolutely
0: like neglecting
2: that self-care that is awful for just I mean not while I was going through treatment but subsequently just not taking the right medication just not doing it as a kind of two fingers up I don't want to be subject to all these rules and things I've got to do and follow and this is my rebellious actually this isn't happening I'm just not gonna I'm not playing and you're like who are you harming here like there is no one the, the two fingers is going up to no one except yourself and your health like it's not affecting anyone else but you can get in that real sort of unhealthy coping strategies
0: which can be really hard to let go of if they work in the short term yes and that's the thing and they can work in the short term and I I can completely see your rebelliousness coming out in that way and it does make sense to me and also that you're the only one that pays for it which again like not getting into kind of a nutritional thing but if you're either not eating or not taking care of your basic needs through food um, yeah that becomes you know sort of another way to kind of like almost punish your body, but it's only you that's yeah. that's being punished by that, not anybody else. So again, it's like this internalization mm. of these feelings, but lashing out inwardly. Yeah. And
2: I think with any I've always thought with any mental health diagnosis, if it becomes that kind of that it needs a diagnosis and you need help. Um Really, they're just extreme behaviors that we can probably all relate to. Yeah. You know, so when you're talking about addiction and alcoholism, it's you know it's a compulsion and an obsession, and you cannot stop even though you want to. I'm pretty sure most people can relate to, oh God, I drank too much and now I feel rough and I don't. I'm never doing that again. <laughs> and then the next, you know, it's it's a it's a familiar pattern. Or my head's so full and I just want something to take the edge off. I'm just going to do it tonight, even though it might not be the, you know, it. They're all sort of inverted commas normal behaviors that when they become that they're affecting your life in a really destructive way that's when it becomes a bit more of a sort of thing that might be diagnosed and treated and you might get professional help with Mm -hmm. but even if you're not at that stage i think it's just a really healthy thing to look at you know is there anything i'm doing that's just not serving me well at the minute and is there someone i could talk to about that and what might
0: i do to get some support around changing it a little bit Yeah, and not being embarrassed if it's years and years after whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, was the big challenge. I know for me, um, during uh, cancer treatment and for years afterwards, I couldn't actually drink more than two drinks. I wanted to. Oh, boy, did I want to. But my throat would literally close up on the second drink and I couldn't get it down my neck. And I wanted to let loose. I wanted to get drunk. Um, And it just wasn't happening. And then eventually over time, I was able to drink a little bit more, but I was super lightweight. And then I ended up having some functional um, neurological issues. Um, And this was about five years afterwards. And those they were really crazy making so it was nerve pain all over my body Um, I couldn't walk down a hallway without falling the walls and the floor were moving I couldn't drive Um, I had to have scans to make sure that there was nothing in my brain Um, it was so my stress levels just went way up and so did my anger at my body like at that point I was like you know it's one thing for cancer, it's one thing for menopause, it's one thing for, you know, losing a pregnancy like but now this? Are you are you kidding me? And I just sat with a bottle and just started drinking and actually it made walking in the waviness make more sense. So weirdly enough, I'm not, you know, it's definitely not something that I should have done, but then I started drinking um, just because, just because I was mad, you know, that rebelliousness, I'd done good by my body and look what it's doing to me. And there was this, yeah, complex kind of lashing out, but really it was lashing in, um, and having to like eventually look at that and go, mm. Mm. you know, it's not really helping. is it? <laughs> <It's-> <laughs> Yeah, and it's you know where do you go with that stuff it's
2: not easy to find I think and and we don't talk about it enough no. either like in terms of you know what Ben's talking about is alcoholism and, and he's got some help with it and that's amazing and it sounds like he's doing incredibly well yeah I think addiction can come out in all sorts of ways like I I ended up being on like strong painkillers for a really long time at the end of my treatment um, and it became a real problem for me and it and it has been something that I've continued to monitor, and that's like 20 years on now, and I still have to be aware of my sort of behavior around those kind of drugs because what it did for me, and I think this is the problem is when you combine trauma with something that quickly relieves stress and anxiety, it's like a perfect storm like yeah. it's almost not surprising that you end up wanting that substance for more than just its painkilling benefits. You know, you take this painkiller, it gets rid of whatever pain you've got. It also makes you feel chilled out and floaty. Like, why wouldn't you want more of that when you're super stressed and going through a really difficult time? Um, But nobody, when they're giving patients, uh, to be fair, this was some time ago, it may have changed. I honestly don't think it has, but I have to give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, There's very little talk when giving you Stuff like that to um, help with symptoms, whether it's you know anxiety medication, what, what, whatever it is, there's very little chat around the potential for addiction in that in that world. So again, it's something I think we just—it's the stigma, isn't it? Mm-hmm. With all this stuff, um, asking for help around that stuff is really really difficult, but it's so important and it's there, and it's you know again, it happens to a lot of people.
0: And you did know, you I get
2: help? There are a lot of people in the community.
0: And did you so, did you get help with it? Did I you? Did. I did.
2: Yeah. I, I I I've I've seen counselors on and off, and got therapy on and off ever since my illness. Uh, initially, I was really reluctant, and I was like, like I said, I was that uptight perfectionist, won't talk about how you feel person. And <laughs> it took me a bit of time to find someone who I did feel comfortable talking to. That really helped and now i use that as my yardstick of like actually remind yourself this can be really useful and i treat i treat it just like like you'd go for a mot on your health every few years i just go and have a bit of therapy because i think it's just i'm going i want to check in with how i'm doing and make sure that i'm as happy as i can be given everything that's going on
0: and i just i for me it's been the best thing Yeah, and that thing of not giving up, I think that was something that Ben said. It was a bit of trial and error finding. So, you know, it is tough when you're going through something that the first person you go to might not be the right one for you. Um, I sometimes think finding a therapist is like dating. I know That might be really inappropriate. (laughs) but, um, But there is this sort of a chemistry. And when you find the right one, it can, you know, really... You know, unlock so much but um, I've definitely had some that were just a waste of time with Reem and, and Kieran and Ben they've all got so many insights mm. and so some of the things that they were pointing to was yes reaching out not waiting too long like it's okay to go earlier um, some of the things that they wish they had done differently is like I wish I had seen somebody sooner and um, And trying new things. So Ben saying I'd never done a group support situation, didn't know that I was (laughs) into all of that. But actually, like, hearing about what he's gone on to do afterwards has been really, really incredible. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the Shine programs? Yeah, so, I mean, if you're looking at a sort of
2: a whole ream, not ream, our ream, a ream of resources that that are available to people the shine programs are one of those and they do like a few few of the guys talking today have mentioned that they've done the programs and found them really helpful and i think what they are is a six-week online program um we meet for two hours online once a week um and we do programs we do different programs so we do one called the breakout which is for anyone at any stage of treatment we do one called the circles program which is for anyone with an incurable diagnosis or living with a chronic cancer Um, and then um, less frequently but we do run um, programs for plus ones um, so partners of young adults as well essentially what that does is it just gives you that space that two hours a week where you know you can talk to people who just will get it and you're not going to have to filter And you can share some of the thoughts that you might be worried are crazy or, you know, that you're thinking, God, am I the only one thinking this? Because, I mean, I think for me, when I'm talking about this, the isolation of living with uh, illness and then mental health symptoms or a diagnosis, whatever it is, the the isolation is something that just emphasises your experience of those symptoms in a way that, you know, it's almost like, it's a quick fix that might actually work and be healthy, like talking to someone like, rather than sort of just taking the edge off. I found that personally, but also through running these programs, the the most positive feedback we get is about the chance to talk to other people who are going through the same thing, who get it. Um, so they are, yeah, we run them pretty frequently. So always keep an eye out because applications are actually open for the March program
0: now lovely, uh, and um they can find that on shinecancersupport.org um mm-hmm. yeah and also on social media i mean we're everywhere but um, but definitely go to the web page you can find out loads more information and in those programs like we will we cut we touch on a lot
2: of the things we've talked about today a lot of the kind of feelings and emotions that come with going through cancer so if you're struggling that's absolutely something to to think about
0: Yes. So thank you um, to Claire um, for joining me today. And thank you so much. A huge thank you to Reem, Kieran and Ben for sharing your experiences. And, um, you know, you can see even with me and Claire, like how much we've related to them. And I know lots of you listening will have related to um, parts of their stories. So thank you so much. And also thank you to Radio Facilities for sponsoring our podcast.